Today in Speaking Out of Place, we are joined by Anthony Arnup and Haley Pesson, who are co-editors of a marvelous new volume entitled Voices of a People's History of the United States in the 21st Century, Documents of Hope and Resistance. This book is not only a beautiful archive of people's struggles in the 21st century, but also a powerful tribute to and continuation of the work of professor and radical historian Howard Zinn. We speak with Anthony and Haley about the histories of struggles and the possibilities for building a more beautiful future. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the Creative Process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. I thought we could start with asking you both about the genesis of this book. How did it come about? And the second part of that question would be, how did the collaboration come about? If you could just both dive into those questions. And so really the beginning of this project is the book of Howard Zinn's, with which so many readers are familiar, People's History of the United States, first published in 1980, a book that actually recently reached the milestone of 4 million copies being sold. I had the great fortune of working with Howard for a number of years in the late 1990s when I was an editor at a publishing house called South End Press. And through my connection with Howard that I established there, we worked together on a play that he wrote and I produced and published called Marx and Soho. Then we did a book of interviews together called Terrorism and War. And in the course of being on a book tour for Terrorism and War, we were at an event and at church in Park Slope. And Howard brought up afterwards that he had long hoped to publish a companion to his people's history that would gather together the primary resources, the speeches, the letters, the manifesto the songs, all the rich material from the social movements and the voices of protests from U.S. history that he felt had been the real fabric of his book, A People's History of the United States, and that he understood from aging with his readers really was what drew them to the and inspired them, encountering the voices of people like Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass and Eugene Debs, who either had been excluded from their traditional education and from mainstream culture, or had been taught in a way where they had been completely flattened out or marginalized. And by centering those voices, Howard understood that there was a very important connection being made with readers. And so he had this idea of creating an anthology alongside People's History of the United States. But that project had never come to fruition. And then I was very fortunate through my working with Howard to suggest that we collaborate on realizing that vision. And in the early 2000s, we started gathering together the documents that became a book that we published in 2004 called Voices of a People's History of the United States. That book gather more than 200 or so selections from the entire history of the United States, going back to the conquest of the Americas by Christopher Columbus up to what was then the present. And in 2003, this milestone happened. I mentioned that A People's History of the United States has now sold more than 4 million copies. At that point, it was nearing selling the one millionth copy. And Howard's publisher, HarperCollins, wanted to do something to commemorate that important milestone. Quite unusual for a book, let alone a radical book of history, to reach that milestone. But their idea was to have an academic conference. And Howard was not interested in that idea, to put it subtly and had a much better idea, which was to get together actors and writers and musicians to give voice to the stories and the narratives and the dissenting documents that we were beginning to gather in a people's history of the United States. So we had that first performance in 2003, early in New York City, and Kurt Vonnegut read Eugene Debs and James Earl Jones read Frederick Douglass and Patti Smith performed and Marissa Tomei. It was a brilliant night. And it really brought home to us that this was not just a compelling material in the form of a book, but that it was also something that could be performed on stages, in union halls, in community centers, in churches, in schools. And there was also a way that this material could be used in classrooms. And so that began a journey of working with Howard on a number of performances, on a curriculum around these serials, on a second edition of the book that came out in 2010. And then unfortunately we lost Howard in that year. 
And so I worked on a third edition that came out in 2014, where at least I had the benefit of knowing that there were certain issues and topics that Howard would have wanted to represent as new voices in that volume. But when it came to working on what would have been the fourth edition, I had a conversation with our publisher, Seven Stories Press, and they pointed out that really the book had become at this point more than 700 pages long. And there was so much rich material we wanted to draw on for the voices of the 21st century that it really made sense to think about doing a new book. And at that point, I knew that the person who I would really love to collaborate with and finding those voices and curating them and creating this new edition was Haley, which I think would be a great place to bring her into the conversation. So I knew Anthony through political organizing that I did when I was a college student in Massachusetts at Williams College, which was not a very radical place to be a radical, but it was an interesting experience for sure. I then moved back to Rockland County, where I'm from, and did some organizing there as well with students on the New Paul campus and then also in New York City. And through all that, I relied a lot on Haymarket Books, which is just a wonderful resource for ideas for changing the world. And that was the main way in which I knew Anthony and also through some of the writing and political work I'd done. I also was very familiar with Howardson's work. I was lucky enough to have his A People's History of the United States as one of my textbooks in high school. And I was actually part of a really early thrown together voices production. I read Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman on stage and really saw that as something that shaped my understanding of how history has actually happened, not because of the actions of great people, but because of the actions of ordinary people, very often in defiance of the status quo and collectively trying to change the reality around them. And then when Anthony approached me about this, it was a no-brainer. This was incredibly exciting work and an incredible legacy to build on. And I, we worked for about a year and a half gathering different resources. Anthony had a big archive already in existence because of the potential selections and voices, productions and performances that he'd been involved in with performance wing of all of this. And then I, as an activist, back to my brain to say, what was a protest that I went to where someone had said something just incredibly powerful? Or what was a text that I'd read that had really stuck with some examples that come to mind are the Ferguson Action Network had this incredible statement about how the movement lies not only in the present day around the death of Michael Brown, but in the legacy of racism in the bloodied BART stations where Oscar Grant was murdered by police and in the floodwaters of Katrina. Then it might be a protest that I'd gone to or seen a video of a friend of mine and comrade, Curry Peterson Smith, we had his speech because in the wake of a massive anti-fascist protest of tens of thousands of people following the Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville, where white supremacists murdered Heather Heyer, and then getting to work with actors through the Voices Project and thinking about which of these pieces were not only powerful of a text, but also powerful to be read aloud, because it really, I found, did something different to have those texts actually come to life and knowing that they'd also made a real impact in real time when the people who spoke those words spoke them. All of that created a really exciting project and that much more of an exciting book to work together on. Perhaps now would be a good time to hear some of those voices that are included in the collection. So if each of you could read the texts that you've selected, one that speaks particularly to you. Haley, do you want to read first? And then I can read a second reading. And then Haley and I have a piece by Howard Zinn that we want to read together. So we'll take turns reading within that piece. All right. That sounds good. So the first piece I'd like to read is by Bree Newsom, who is an activist from uh, South Carolina, who became famous for taking down the Confederate flag, which actually hung alongside the state flag in the state capitol. And her piece is called Now is the Time for True Courage. For far too long, white supremacy has dominated the politics of America, resulting in the creation of racist laws and cultural practices designed to subjugate non-whites. And the emblem of the Confederacy, the stars and bars, 
in all its manifestations, has long been the most recognizable banner of this political ideology. I removed the flag, not only in defiance of those who enslaved my ancestors in the southern United States, but also in defiance of the oppression that continues against Black people globally in 2015, including the ongoing ethnic cleansing in the Dominican Republic. I did it in solidarity with the South African students who toppled the statue of the white supremacist colonialist Cecil Rhodes. I did it for all the fierce Black women on the front lines of the movement and for all the little Black girls who are watching us. I did it because I am free. To all those who might label me an outside agitator, I say to you that humanitarianism has no borders. I am a global citizen. My prayers are with the poor, the afflicted, and the oppressed everywhere in the world, as Christ instructs. If this act of disobedience can serve as a symbol to other people's struggles against oppression, or as a symbol of victory over fear and hate, then I know all the more that I did the right thing. And that, again, is Bree Newsom. Thank you. I'll read from Adam Kaczynski. He's a member of IUE CWA Local 201 in Lynn, Massachusetts, and a machinist at General Electric there. A worker at that plant, you may remember, launched a protest on March 30th 2020, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, demanding that they be allowed to use the company's idled manufacturing facilities to make desperately needed ventilators for coronavirus patients. The words that I'm going to read are from an interview that he had with the journalist Sarah Jaffe. So this is Adam Kaczynski. There's been deindustrialization happening, and we've been told it's inevitable. It's trade, it's competition. We've seen our plant go from thousands and thousands of people, and we are down to about 1,200 members. You used to not be able to park in the plant. Now, half the thing is a parking lot. There are idle buildings and some idle capacity. We have plants all over the country like that. The union has been fighting to keep union jobs and manufacturing jobs in the United States for as long as we've been here. Right now, there's an opportunity for these life-saving ventilators and where there's skilled manufacturing workers and aisle capacity, it feels like a perfect fit. We decided to pick it outside of the plant in Lynn and outside of GE headquarters to raise this demand. Manufacturing is what workers in these facilities do. It would be totally possible for GE to make the kinds of investments in manufacturing these plants that would make ventilator production possible. Where there is idle capacity on machines right now, could start making metal parts for ventilators within 24 hours. I think GE posted 95 billion in revenue last year. So anything is possible. Union workers are tired of watching the rich and corporations take advantage of this crisis to screw us over. We have a different vision of how the world should work. That is when there's something you can do that is productive for society, that is needed, and you have the skills to do it, Profit should not be the overwhelming motive for what we produce. Everybody needs sick time now, right? Everybody needs PPE. Everybody needs protections if they're laid off to be able to come back to their job. These are things that unions provide people. I'm hoping that we can get ahead of the crisis and use it to build our unions and use it to revitalize our best shot at getting a world that isn't strictly controlled by corporations in the interests of a small elite. That was, again, Adam Kaczynski in Lynn, Massachusetts. And now you had then, uh, something from Howard Zinn that you both wanted to read? Yes. Yeah, so we're going to read from an essay by Howard Zinn called Don't Despair about the Supreme Court that he published October 21st, 2005. And we'll trade off reading paragraphs. I'll begin here. There is enormous hypocrisy surrounding the pious veneration of the Constitution and the rule of law. The Constitution, like the Bible, is infinitely flexible and is used to serve the political needs of the moment. When the country was in economic crisis and turmoil in the 1930s and capitalism needed to be saved from the anger of the poor and hungry and unemployed, the Supreme Court was willing to stretch to infinity the constitutional right of Congress to regulate interstate commerce. It decided that the national government, desperate to regulate farm production, could tell a family farmer what to grow on his tiny piece of land. When the Constitution gets in the way of a war, it is ignored. When the Supreme Court was faced during Vietnam with a suit by soldiers refusing to go, claiming that there had been no declaration of war by Congress as the Constitution required, 
the soldiers could not get four Supreme Court justices to agree to even hear the case. When during World War I, Congress ignored the First Amendment's right to free speech by passing legislation to prohibit criticism of the war, the imprisonment of dissenters under this law was upheld unanimously by the court, which included two presumably liberal and learned justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis. It would be naive to depend on the Supreme Court to defend the rights of poor people, women, people of color, dissenters of all kinds. Those rights only come alive when citizens organize, protest, demonstrate, strike, boycott, rebel, and violate the law in order to uphold justice. The distinction between law and justice is ignored by all those senators, Democrats and Republicans, who solemnly invoke as their highest concern the rule of law. The law can be just, it can be unjust. It does not deserve to inherit the ultimate authority of the divine right of the king. The Constitution gave no rights to working people, no right to work less than 12 hours a day, no right to a living wage, no right to safe working conditions. Workers had to organize, go on strike, defy the law, the courts, the police, create a great movement which won the eight-hour day and caused such commotion that Congress was forced to pass a minimum wage law and Social Security and unemployment insurance. The Brown decision on school desegregation did not come from a sudden realization of the Supreme Court that this is what the 14th Amendment called for. After all, it was the same 14th Amendment that had been cited in the Plessy case upholding racial segregation. It was the initiative of brave families in the South, along with the fear by the government, obsessed with the Cold War, that it was losing the hearts and minds of people of color all over the world, that brought a sudden enlightenment to the court. The rights of working people, of women, of Black people have not depended on decisions of the courts. Like the other branches of the political system, the courts have recognized these rights only after citizens have engaged in direct action, powerful enough to win these rights for themselves. And again, that was Howard Zinn writing in October of 2005. Thank you for those readings, which speak so powerfully to the impetus to move from economies and politics of death underpinned by the violence of the rule of law towards economies and politics of life fueled by social movements and the power of people. I'm speaking to you and reading this text from the other side of this violent artificial colonial line known as the Canada-U.S. border, dismembering Indigenous territories. And indeed, so many of the texts included in the collection denaturalized the very idea of the United States as a coherent political entity. The first speech from Howard Zinn speaks about the inherent violence of borders. Texts by Indigenous scholars and speakers and activists point out the pre-existing Indigenous sovereignty, which Indigenous nations continue to assert in defense of waters and lands, even in the face of ongoing genocidal erasure. Texts from Puerto Rico and Guam center those colonies which are so often erased in what scholars like Daniel Imarwar call America's hidden empire, even though it is not so invisible, of course, to those who live under it. The two decades covered by this collection have also been the two decades of the war on terror. The paradigmatic, most harrowing, devastating example of how the U.S.'s geography of violence extends far beyond its declared borders to Guantanamo, to Mogadishu, to Abu Ghraib, and how it is precisely those people who, because they are outside of the territorial United States, are simultaneously most subject to America's sovereign terror, yet are denied legal remedies as well as too often discursively erased. And given that so much of the U.S.'s violence is enacted through forcible inclusion of those who don't want to be included in it, or inclusion only to be subjected to powers of violence but excluded from any rights, protections, or remedies, can we have your reflections on how you compile a volume on a people's history of the United States from the undersides of that history without simultaneously reifying or reinscribing the idea of the United States itself and the lines through which it determined who's included, which organize and legitimize its violence in the first place. 
So thank you for the kind words about the book and for framing it in an international context. I think it's fair to say that Anthony and I, despite writing a book featuring voices of the United States or the United States history, are internationalists and were very mindful in compiling the volume that what we wanted to include had to include people who have either been the victims of oppression by the United States, except that was possible in a sort of regionally limited volume, and also to include their resistance in particular. And I think that some of the voices that you mentioned from Guam, from Native people in Hawaii, from Nick Esta, who's a Native scholar and activist, and a number of those texts were very important to us to feature. There are some maybe smaller, but I think important kind of editorial decisions we made. I don't think we consciously at any point, unless the speaker referred to America as an idea or America as a place or people really use that word. We tried to err on the side of calling it the United States, of referring to it as a state and being clear that our sort of vantage point in what we're doing is really people who are questioning what this country has been and questioning what it has done in a land of the free. What does it mean to have the voices of people who are formerly or currently incarcerated or facing the death penalty or who actually were victims of the death penalty? What does it mean to have people who were born in this country who are ostensibly citizens but are treated to conditions quite similar to what the U.S. meets now on a daily basis around the world in the terms of military violence. Often Black communities have been a testing ground for those sorts of things in other places and vice versa. And so that oppression is deeply interconnected. And I think another important thing that comes out, it's not necessarily what I went in or what Anthony went in hoping to do, but I think that what compiling these pieces in chronological order really showed are the intersectionality of these struggles and the fact that there was not really a piece that we could have organized under just indigenous struggle or just environmental struggle or just black struggle or just feminism or any number of struggles you could point to or disability justice. Many of those things either played off of each other because in real time there were different movements being inspired by each other or people had come to an understanding in the moment where they were resisting that there were connections that were important to draw out in those struggles. So it wasn't like we consciously said, hey, let's do it this way. But that is actually, I think, the nature of struggle over the last two decades. And so that's very much reflected in the volume. If I could just add one thing again, thank you for noticing and highlighting that aspect of the book. The question of internationalism and the question of anti-imperialism were very important organizing principles for us. And they certainly were for Howard and his work, where he was centrally involved in organizing against the Vietnam War. And I was involved with working with Howard in struggles to oppose the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the broader U.S. war on terrorism. And that was very important to Howard's vision as well. I just wanted to highlight two other readings. Early in the book, we feature Arundhati Roy, who gave a brilliant anti-war speech in 2003 at the Riverside Church in New York City that I had the privilege of helping organize. And that was the very podium at which Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous speech against the Vietnam War at great personal risk with people advising him against giving that very speech and being denounced by the establishment and liberals very roundly as he was immediately afterward. You can go back and read, for example, how the New York Times covered that brilliant speech in which he referred to the United States as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, describing what the U.S. was doing in Indochina. Adi came to the U.S. and it was an incredible moment of international solidarity and making connections in the global movement. So we thought that was a very uh, important touchstone early in the book. And then at the end of the book, um, and of course, this is an ongoing story, but it was very important for us to include the voice of youth anti-imperialist organizers in the movement dissenters. And they have a short, but very important statement that we include that they released in 2022, actually in the form of social media posts. It's one of the few examples of that in the book in terms of its origin, but it was a statement called the centers opposes imperialist violence everywhere, February 25th, 2022. And I think that's a brilliant example of internationalism and anti-imperialism 
that doesn't make the mistake of seeing the United States as the sole axis through which all politics is Manichaean defined in the world, but understanding that we, to be truly internationalist, have to oppose imperialism in whatever form it takes. So I had a couple of reactions. I'm so glad you read Bree Newsom's statement because I was prompted by Aziza's notion, you know, what's your favorite three or four or five or six? And Bree Newsom's was one of them in the same way as Rachel Corey's was. And the reason for that was that both of them are associated with so much a very compelling visual image, but we don't hear the voices behind the image. We have the media coverage and framing of Brie climbing the flag post and ripping down the flag. We have, in Rachel's case, a picture of an Israeli bulldozer. And so you don't get the vibrant voices behind narrating that story. And the other one I liked, and I think I'm going to take the liberty to read Stephen Salada's because... So much of the book is about, as you said, Haley, ordinary people. And Stephen was forced out of the academy, and he is now writing some of the most compelling prose in America as he does the gig as a school bus driver. So I encourage everybody to look at his website. And he's a comrade, he's a friend, and I was with him during that whole period when he was being shoved out of the academy, and his selection is called Don't Let Fear Be the Lesson. And I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs. A few thoughts on leaving academe. I'm still young and energetic. I don't intend to slosh around in self-pity. Whatever I end up doing, I will maintain the spirit of non-compliance that defined my time in academe. If you take any lesson from my ouster, please don't let it be fear or caution. Docility is a gift to those who profit from injustice. Academe can no longer afford this luxury. People still ask if I would go back in time and change anything. I would not. If my behavior were dishonorable, then I might have something to regret. I condemned a brutal ethnocratic state. On this count, I will die unapologetic. And insofar as we are forced to contemplate life in binaries, I prefer unemployment to subservience. My heart is with those who struggle for dignity amid terrible oppression. I spare no loyalty to a bourgeois industry that rewards self-importance and conformity. And so that speaks in so many different ways about the perniciousness of the academy and institutions of education to crush people. And what I love about your book is it's such a wonderful teaching text. It's like you could design five or six different courses around any cluster, and you would have an arsenal, if you will, to fight against the terrible ways in which the state has decided that education is going to look a certain way and be what Freire calls the banking model of education. And Stephen's case also points out the power of ordinary people. So I'd love for you to both talk about what the selection process was like, because you must have had a zillion different possibilities. What kinds of main things besides internationalism drove you to select what you did? Also, yeah. mm -hmm. are there any texts that you wish that you could have included or wanted to include, <laughs> but that you ended up not? So the way that we started out, I think, again, we have the luxury that Anthony and I come out of a similar shared political tradition. And so some of the things that we were prioritizing what's clear from the jump. As opposed to the individual pieces, we both shared, I think, what goes back to Howard Zinn, which is that we wanted these to be not just texts that gave you information. You can read any piece that gives you information. Well, we could write introduction for a piece and that can give you the same information. Then it's not necessarily a piece that we would have included. And there's so much terrible information. I don't mean bad information, depressing information that is almost self-evident to say, right now in the times we're living through with climate crisis, with turmoil, with any number of things. And just we read the piece about oh, the Supreme Court by Howard Zinn. The moment we're living for is just as apt for why something like that is relevant. But I think that we could have featured a lot of very depressing pieces simply by virtue of the times that we've been living through. And it was important to us and in line with the original Voices book to have voices of hope, to have voices that actually represented that even in very difficult times and difficult circumstances, people are always resisting. And so there actually is a particular kind of history and a particular selectiveness in what we're trying to put forward because it's not just an archive in the sense that it's not so comprehensive as to include everything we could have included, every single struggle or every single action that people took because there were far more than we could have possibly included. 
but to feature the pieces that were both very strong in terms of the kind of people speaking, the way that they were speaking, the moment in which they were speaking or resisting. Again, we were conscious of whether these might be pieces that eventually could be read out loud if they were being read in a classroom or being read on a stage or just being read at home by yourself. Again, it's to me meant to be a resource for both teachers and activists as something you could go back to and reference and say, here are people who were in very similar circumstances to us, or maybe very different ones, but who still found a way to resist. And so the idea that struggle from below has been a driving force in history. Again, we featured, I think, only one politician in the entire book, which is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the context in which she was speaking against sexism in the highest halls of power. But the vast majority of people that we included are not necessarily very known people. There are very known people who are incredible, like Christian Smalls, the Amazon worker who was fired initially for organizing against pandemic era conditions and racism at Amazon. And Angela Davis speaking at the Women's March on Washington, one of the largest protests, or if not the largest single day protest in U.S. history. But then we have people, like you mentioned, Brie Newsom, who people may know but have not actually heard who is incredibly powerful, or Troy Davis, who was executed by the state of Georgia, in his own words, speaking to the need for that struggle to continue beyond his execution, or Erica Gordon-Taylor, the cousin of Emmett Till, who was an activist, came out against police brutality in the presence, as well as in support of her cousin's legacy and the activism of her family against racism in the South and around the country. So there's any number of things that I hope people will be able to find. And we did try to make it relatively comprehensive. I think the one thing that was a little challenging to find was actually around housing justice. We did have one piece that didn't quite work for what we were looking for. But what I note that because a lot of the voices we were able to find were not the people who are directly impacted but NGOs or people organizing on their behalf. I think that what's actually important is that the people who are directly impacted actually have the most to say about these experiences and are the best positioned in some cases to resist them. Yeah, if we had all the time in the world and all the resources in the world, I would say there were a few challenges with curation. We were very lucky that everyone that we approached for permission understood the project and was incredibly supportive and we were able to get a permission handily and readily quickly from so many of the voices that are in this book, which was a great honor to us. There were a few cases where we were able to include poetry, but when it comes to questions of creative writing, poetry, songs, fiction, the question of permissions does tend to get a little thornier. And sometimes there are other parties involved other than the writer, shall we say. And so the cost of including some of the pieces that we might have otherwise wanted to include did prove a bit prohibitive. And that's something that we're especially mindful of when we think about putting on our live performances, because music carries a very powerful emotional valence. It's a very important way of expressing political ideas, getting across ideas to a much larger audience, inspiring people. And so we wanted to reflect that, but we're restricted in our ability to do. It's worth noting, you know, if you go back to Howard Zinn's own personal story, Howard was politicized in part through listening to the music of Woody Guthrie. He tells the story of being a young person, being involved in political organizing, going to protests, reading books alongside dock workers with whom he was organizing uh, on the docks in the shipyards of Brooklyn listening to what he got through records and coming across labor history that had been written out of the school textbooks. And that when he then went to formally study history and went to university on the GI Bill were systematically written out of the story of the United States. And so Howard always had an appreciation of music, of theater, of other creative arts and how important they are to, to social movements. And it's interesting that some of the people who Howard worked with and taught at Spelman College, included Alice Walker, the novelist, and Bernice Reagan Johnson, who was one of the co-founders of Sweet Honey and the Rock. He was always interested and passionate about theater, about music, about those ways in which artists contribute to the history of social movements. So are you saying next we can look forward to Voices of a People's History of the United States, the musical? <laughs> I, would. I love that. But actually... 
We have actually <laughs> done a few performances, one in Nashville, one in New York, called The People Sing, which are evenings entirely of songs of protest. I think that this should be something that is implanted in every school, you know, the possibility of staging something like this. And when you were mentioning the Woody Guthrie story, Anthony, you know, I learned, as most of us did, about Woody Guthrie through campfire songs and sing-alongs. And of course, they always taught us this land is your land, but they excised the stands about private property. Absolutely. Which is why in the first edition of Voices, Howard and I included the original lyrics, which do include those. One thing I want to commend you all on, and in the same spirit as what we were just saying, is that a lot of the way that people learn to speak is through listening to others. And what you've done is provided this amazing panoply of voices that people can choose to amalgamate in any different way. And you know, as an educator, I often enough have students or even junior faculty coming up to me and saying things like, wow, can you say those things? Just the fact that they may not be right or wrong, but just the fact that one is willing to take a risk to be wrong in order to make a point or to get a certain dialogue going. And so what your text does is to create, not unlike a musical, a sing-along, a kind of chorus, if you will, for democracy at a time that we need it so desperately. I'm just thinking about the horrible public event that took place a few days ago, the GOP quote-unquote debate, which is almost a parody of the worst you can imagine in a public discourse. I would be interested to know which kinds of venues are you imagining this book being read in? If you thought of that? Uh, yeah. That's a very important part of our work. And in fact, I'm glad you're asking about this, David, because we do have a nonprofit organization that Howard and I and a few other people started early on in the journey of voices called Voices of a People's History of the United States. Our website is peopleshistory.us. And on that site, we actually share free materials that people can use in the classroom, whether it's in the form of writing exercises, reading exercises, but also tools for putting on your own performances. So we very much see the kind of open source organizing and creating resources for teachers who we understand are very constrained and increasingly constrained in what they can teach in the classroom. But there's something advantageous about the modular nature of this project, where you can introduce a chapter or a selection or a group of selections as you see fit and curate different narrative arcs and journeys through this text. And of course, it also has inspired people to bring in other voices that we did not include, but we certainly encourage that and are excited about those efforts. People highlighting and bringing in new voices, including voices of their students. We're always in our live performances looking to add newer material. And in any live performance, there might be a speech that we include that we couldn't include came out after we finished this particular volume and hope that there'll be other ways in which we can gather and curate those materials. But our hope is that this will be happening in high schools and community colleges and union halls and churches and organizing groups, wherever it is that people are getting together. And increasingly, unfortunately, we're having to create alternative institutions, mm -hmm. understand history and to have conversations about how we can intervene in history because these conversations are increasingly being literally criminalized. Yes. Librarians are being fired and punished. Teachers are being fired and punished. Whole colleges are being taken over and gutted. EP courses are being labeled as not credit worthy and being canceled. And whole conversations around critical race theory and other topics are literally being declared illegal. It reminds me, I grew up in Indiana and went to public school there. And I didn't have the benefit that Haley had of having a teacher who brought a people's history of the United States into the classroom. That would have been unimaginable in my school. So it wasn't until later on when I was in college, but again, not even in a course that I was taking in college, but among activists in a reading group where we informally started to create our own reading curriculum that I read a people's history of the United States for the first time. And it wasn't that much after that that the governor of Indiana, Mitch Daniels, sought to ban the use of Howard's book, not only in public schools, but across the whole public university system of Indiana. And then he went on to be the president of Purdue University. So these attacks have been going on for a long time. 
And there's a long history of book banning in this country. There's a long history of criminalizing dissent in this country. But I do think we all have to recognize that we're in a much more dangerous moment right now where a new form of McCarthyism is really emboldened. And we have to speak out against that, but we also have to defend all of those librarians and teachers and educators and parents who are seeking to preserve their right to share this actual history with students and teach history in a meaningful and critically engaged way. And also we have to be thinking about what are the institutions we're going to build to, to teach this history and to organize, to activate the ideas in this history again. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to point out a few things building off of what Anthony mentioned. One is that a number of the people who we're lucky enough to have featured in the book are people who have had their work banned as a result of the bans on critical race theory and other things. We feature Kimberly Crenshaw, who is most popularly associated with the originator of the term origin intersectionality. We have Tanya Yamada-Taylor, we have Barbara Ramsey, we have a number of voices who would be on those book lists. And we also have educators like Jesse Hagopian, I'm not afraid to teach truth or I'm pledging to teach truth. There are people who are resisting these attacks and we want to find any way to stand with them. So if there are creative ways that people can find to bring this book in as a resource, whether that's at more traditional theater events or maybe activist events, maybe it's an event where people are in the process of resisting. Maybe it's where they want to feature their students' voices. I have to say my favorite event, period, are the voices events that feature young people in middle and high school, because in a way, they're some of the most powerful. You can see the way that when they read these words, when they're literally giving embodiment to the voices of people who are either older than them or maybe the same age as them, because we feature people in the book. I think the youngest person in the book is nine and the oldest person is in their 70s. So that really is a kind of inspiring way of relating to that history and also of thinking about the present and ways that we might continue to resist. So I really think it would be wonderful to find out any creative ways that people can find to use this as a resource and to put on events and resist this kind of clash that we're facing against, especially queer history and trans history and Black history, among others. As you said, the history of book banning in the United States, as in Canada, goes back many years and book burning goes to the very origins of the settler colonial project that inquisition tactics of book burning were exported from the old world to the quote-unquote new world with the pseudo discovery of Columbus of the Americas. So often anti-racism and anti-oppression, at least in Canada where we're perhaps more naive, but it's often approached from a position of assuming that the problem is simply a deficit of knowledge that if it could be corrected would lead us inexorably towards justice. But the fact that you center a banned text in your book, also something that Howard Zinn had written in his original People's History of the United States, which always stuck with me, one of the many things from his book that stuck with me, was his observation that a far more effective way of editing history in the interests of the powerful is not simply to exclude information. And he was saying this specifically with respect to Columbus's genocide of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. A more effective way to edit history is not simply to exclude information, which could be rectified then by simply including it, but rather to include it in a way which suggests that non-importance, that it's marginal, or that even such acts of violence were valorized or beneficial or good. And so can you talk a bit about how the project of compiling a volume like Voices of People's History of the United States, how the ethics and approach of it is different when you're approaching it from a perspective, not of addressing simply a passive deficit of information, but what the philosopher Charles Mills labeled white ignorance, the very active, aggressive promulgation of ignorance as truth. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you brought up and a really keen observation from Howard that I'm reminded of repeatedly, that any attempt to tell history involves a process of editing and curation. What are the facts that are important? What are the stories that are important? Whose stories matter? Which voices matter? And it's not just through exclusion, but as you point out, it's through inclusion in a way that can marginalize, that can contain, that can suffice voices as we've seen with the remarkable recuperative 
powers of U.S. history, uh, which I'm far more familiar with, in its ability to turn figures like Martin Luther King from the figure who was reviled and hated for his and on organizing workers, organizing against racism, fighting against the Vietnam War, denouncing the crimes of this government, a person who was hounded and vilified by the federal government and for whom they were actively trying to drive him to suicide, someone who is subject to government harassment and surveillance, but then can be recuperated as a figure of colorblindness, inclusion, American exceptionalism, American patriotism, corporate America, and any number of other ideologies that are com complete distortions of King and the social movement that made King possible and that he was the embodiment of. And something similar happening now in Florida with the state curriculum that Ron DeSantis is very carefully celebrating and curating for his political benefit and with very powerful forces supporting Florida out of a lab for the rewriting of history to distort the actual history of the United States and recuperate absolutely discredited and rejected and reprehensible ideas about the country of this history. So the point they make is not to exclude the teaching of slavery, but to teach slavery from the standpoint of skills that it imparted to enslave peoples, which is so outrageous a standpoint from which to approach the history of slavery of this country. It really speaks, I think, to your point about history is included and narrated rather than simply excluded. Yeah, the King example is so pernicious. <laughs> Another that comes to mind around abortion rights, which we're now in an era where they are effectively gone at the federal level, which is, I think for a lot of people, very shocking. It's interesting as well, because the way we're taught that history tends to be one where the Supreme Court just magically came to the conclusion that not that a woman's body or anyone who gets pregnant's body is their own, but it's a privacy right for you and your doctor. And so, nevertheless, we learn it as a history that was handed down to us from those on high and not enough about the massive movements that were actually calling for even more or about the women in New York, where there were potentially going to be laws on the books saying that the law that should be passed is actually a blank sheet of paper where we have complete control of our bodies and the government is not involved. Now, there's lots of debates that could be had about what we should be doing and fighting for now that Roe is gone. But the fact that that movement gets erased in our understanding of how we got to the present is the fact that we hear so much and see much in terms of how Republicans have immensely called against these laws, but not enough about how Democrats have capitulated over the last six and failed to actually mount a robust struggle for over the right to free abortion on demand without apology, which was what the movement was originally calling for. And so I think in a way, what I see this book as doing is almost not really a corrective to the last 20 years, but definitely, I hope, expanding people's understanding of what those last 20 years have actually been like. Because an activist, I have the benefit of having been through a lot of the struggles that are featured in the book and having you know, all kind of thought about where is resistance happening and what are people doing to change things. And even when we fail at or a struggle that does not lose, what sees does that plant in people's consciousness about what it takes to win? And so... I see, looking back at the last 20 years, we're now facing a far right that is ascendant. How did we get here? What do we do? Where were people here? But actually understanding that people have actually struggled along the way in different ways, that there also has been a left that is not nearly organized enough, but that actually has, I think, much more popularity in its demands and in its desire for a society that is actually humanitarian, that doesn't prioritize profit over people's lives, that is actually a resonant thing. If we didn't go through the last decades of things like Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock, we would not be in the position that we are today where that is much more popular, especially among young people. And I actually think that's a much more hopeful sort of a period that we're in where we look at not just the strength of the right or the emboldenment of the right, but also the potential we have to fight back and to build on some of these struggles that came before. In the book is included a very beautiful excerpt from Robin Kelly's Freedom Dreams, in which he says that the purpose of social movements and struggles is not simply to document statistics of the oppression that exists 
but also to create the possibilities for a world imagined differently. And so how would you imagine a Voices of the People's History of the United States 20 years from now or 50 years from now when cryogenics has been perfected and we're all still alive? How would you imagine a future edition of this book published in a world that has been changed by the struggles that are included in this version of it? Okay, we'll see what climate change does to all of us. I think we, we have a lot to work on. But there's actually a really lovely piece in the book, and I apologize. Because of my move, I don't have it handy. I'll have to see if perhaps you can find it, Anthony. But we had some pieces by a young person speaking at a forum Naomi Klein organized around the environment where he's actually imagining a world where we actually did everything that we needed to do to fight the climate crisis. It's on page 274. I'll just read an excerpt of it. From Shutetskatl Tonatiu Martinez. To fight for a just climate is to fight for everything that we love. 2019 became the year where we began to tear down the barriers and borders that separated our people, our movements, and our stories. Climate action became woven into every aspect of our society. I remember that time so clearly. It wasn't just activists and politicians who were building the future. Artists, creatives, storytellers, actors, and athletes began realizing their part in these movements to shape culture and reach the masses. Entrepreneurs, designers, architects, and poets began to reimagine what our society could look like if we used this great time of crisis as humanity's most unifying moment. I remember the shows I played for thousands of people and how we transformed those arenas into places of celebration and unity. Our generation began to change the culture of our movements that year. The idea of being an activist was left behind. We realized that it is within our power as humanity and identity that belongs to all of us to change the story and to build the world we've always known was possible place the world is in is a result of us striking the balance between technology, innovation, culture, and the ancient wisdom and teachings of the original peoples of this earth. Here we are 10 years after changing everything to redefine our legacy, carried on in flowers and songs. Beautiful. So before ending, I want to mention that when Aziza and I conceived of the website in which the podcast is embedded, we insisted that there be a blog function. So please give us all the information, Anthony, that you mentioned in terms of the different resources that you're curating and send us all the updates. We'll put it on the blog. We can't thank you enough for being on the show and for this magnificent book and your message of hope and resistance, which is echoed voluminously throughout these many voices. And I know others will be encouraged and inspired to join. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much. We're so honored to be included in this podcast. Thank you. Really, Thank you. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.